Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to see you all. I hope that you are doing well. And if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5. We saw last time, just a couple weeks ago, that this great conflict is about to erupt between um, the Lord and Pharaoh. Oh, and so this great conflict between the Lord and Pharaoh has begun. This cold war that has been brewing for 400 years is now moving into a hot war. And the Lord has preserved his people. He has multiplied his people. He has saved his people in many respects, but he's also, we see it in the life of Moses, how he has saved the life of baby Moses and has raised him up even in the house of, of, of Pharaoh. He called uh, Moses out of the wilderness. He called Moses, in a sense, out of hiding to go and to lead God's people, Moses' people, out of slavery. Now, you might remember back in chapter 2, if you don't, you can turn there, chapter 2, Moses is given a commentary sort of at the end of the chapter of all that's happening before we get to chapter 3 of the burning bush. And Moses says, after the people cried out to the Lord, it says, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. So he, he knows what's happening with his people. His affliction is not lost, or the affliction of the people are not lost on him. And that's huge information. Because now the, the Lord of Lords, Yahweh, I am who I am, is, is going to act on their behalf, which then moves us into chapter 3, the, the burning bush, where the Lord tells Moses there at the beginning in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. So God sees, God hears their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out, of the, out to that land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And this is important, has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Right? And so when we looked at this, we understand now that, again, that the, the Lord is on the move, right? That Cold War is going to get really hot, and it's going to get really hot quickly. He is about to deliver them out of slavery. And all this then begins to happen there at the end of chapter 4. Aaron makes it to, to Moses, right? Remember, he gets to Moses, and, and the Lord tells him to go, and he goes to Moses, and he becomes his sidekick that speaks for, uh, for Moses. Long story short, why he needs a, a, a sidekick. And they go to the elders of, each, of the Israel in Egypt and to all the people, and they say to them all that the Lord has said to them. And they show them the, the signs that the Lord has given them. And amazingly, there in verse 31, we read that they believed the word of the Lord. They believed 
God's prophet to them, the word of the Lord. And do you remember what they do next? They worshiped. They worshiped the Lord. They believed and they worshiped. So, so all is good, right? Right here at the end of chapter four. And now it's time to go to Pharaoh and let the people go and let's move on because God is now delivering them out of Egypt. Well, the plan doesn't go as easy as that, as we saw. So chapter five, verse one, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and this begins the whole saga, right? They say, thus says the Lord. This thus says Yahweh. He says, let my people go. Let his people go. Let them go three days into the wilderness that they may worship me, serve me, serve the Lord. And Pharaoh outright rejects the Lord's demands. He questions the sovereignty of the Lord. In fact, he says, who is this Lord, this Yahweh? Who is this? And he would come to me and tell me what to do. And this this sets off this harsh reality. This king then lays upon more oppression upon God's people to demoralize them even further. So looking at chapter 5, starting in verse 10, the story continues. Stay. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. And I just want to stop there. Look what Moses says. Moses says to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. And Pharaoh's decree is, thus says Pharaoh. That's how tyrants work, by the way. He says, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather straw or stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily work each day, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were, at, and, and were asked, why have you not done all your task in making the bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw given to your, straw, to your servants as they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, Pharaoh... You are idle. You are idle. And that is why you say, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when, when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge. 
because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this, of his land. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. There's a saying that I think that most of us are pretty well familiar with and sometimes say it. And I think it fits this event pretty well. And that is, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Now, that's a title in one of uh, J.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit. That's a title of one of his chapters. And it means just when you think that things couldn't get worse, and what he's meaning by the title chapter, he says, just keep reading and you'll find out how worse that it can get, how bad it really can get. Now, in The Hobbit, just a short story, or just, to, but just to kind of dwindle it down, Anthony will probably get angry because he's kind of a nerd about this stuff, but we love him for that, is that there's these dwarves, and these dwarves get this guy named, he's a hobbit, named Bilbo, and with this wizard, and they're on this great mystical journey, right? Mystical journey. And on this journey, they get stuck in the tunnels of the Misty Mountains, and as they're in the tunnels, they're overcome by goblins, right? Okay, so here you go, right? Now we're getting, you know, going out there, but stick with me. But after they, they narrowly fight their way through the tunnels of, of the misty mountains. And just when it seems like they are, they can, they can take a, a deep breath, a sigh of relief that we've escaped our doom, they are surrounded once again by a hungry pack of wolves, and then the goblins come out to chase them through the forest. They understand, though, that they can't take on this huge group, so they flee down the mountain, and they come up to this cliff, and they climb these trees for safety, but the enemy is still pursuing. They set the forest on fire, and the flames surround them, including the trees, so no wonder Tolkien names this chapter out of the frying pan and into the fire. Things in Egypt were already pretty bad. They were already pretty bad. I mean, they were in, they're in slaves, right? They're, they're in slavery. They're slaves, and they've been slaves for centuries. And there's this burst of, of good news, certainly, God sends his, his man, his prophet Moses, to speak. He speaks, or Aaron speaks, and gives them the, the greatest news that they ever could have heard, the news that they have been waiting for so long. How exciting, how wonderful. So, so that the thought is, Pharaoh has to let us go. 
but not so fast. As we see in the beginning of chapter 5, Pharaoh says no. In fact, he doesn't just say no, he makes things far worse for them. Out of the frying pan into the fire, hard just became harder. Right? And he, he decrees that, that they must make these bricks with, with no straw. And the quota must stay the, the same. Have you ever thought that in, there are times in your own life where that saying is just true? That you might have expected out of doing certain things that life and things would become better, but they don't. The Israelites believed, they, they worshipped, and the consequence of that, in a sense, right, is difficulty. They took the right steps of obedience and right faith and believing God's word, but the immediate results were bad. One of our lessons last time from Exodus was that God's people need to understand that there could be consequences to right belief in a fallen world. And sometimes it seems that, that faithfulness comes with hardships. It's like they, they, they kind of run together. And certainly not always. Some of us have, might have been there before. You can understand that. You've, you've attempted to live a faithful, obedient life, and yet then there's still consequences to that. Not of your own doing, but just living in a fallen world of sickness or other people getting sick or, or whatever it may be. And, and, and this is where, if I could just kind of interject this really quickly, this is where the, the prosperity gospel is just garbage. It is, it is such trash, because not only because it's unbiblical, right? But what it does in its devastation and what it leaves people in, real people with real lives and real hurting lives with just absolute devastation in their wake. To teach essentially that your suffering is because of your lack of faith. Suffering is not only a part of the human existence, because of we live in a fallen world. But as the scripture tells us from the Old and New Testament, clearly that it says that Christians will suffer. That Christians will suffer even for their obedience. And this kind of affliction is what sets the stage for us and how we will respond when, when we face trials. When we suffer directly on the heels of our obedience. And, and what we see this morning done by the foreman and by Moses, the question we must ask ourselves is, will we in the same way judge the Lord's faithfulness by our own immediate circumstances? Do we judge the Lord's faithfulness based upon our immediate circumstances. So, so looking at the story for just a moment, over the centuries, very said, they, they've been in bondage. Israel, the Israelites have been, been in bondage. And they have, 
built these, these great projects for them, and these great cities, right? Turn back to Exodus 1.11, you'll see that, right? Pithom and Ramses, they, they built for the pharaohs. But because of Moses and Aaron's requests, things go from bad to worse for the Israelites. In verses 10 and 11, the Egyptian taskmasters and the, the foremen of the people, of the people of Israel, um, so these are, so it seems like this, this group, right, the foremen, these are Israelites. And these Israelites have been promoted, in a sense, as being managers, as being the, the middlemen between the taskmasters and the actual slaves themselves. They have this hierarchy of leadership. And they, the, the taskmasters come to the foreman and they deliver this decree by Pharaoh to the slaves. Get your own straw. We're not going to give it any more straw. And you have to meet, meet your own quota. It'll, or meet the quota. It'll always be the same. And you have to see for their building project, they needed millions and millions of bricks to be, to be made. Building all of, for, for all the architectural ambitions of Pharaoh. To build buildings and, and military installations and walls and administrative buildings and storehouses and, and, and residence. These mud bricks, which, which required straw, were, were required daily in this quota. Clearly, they had a quota, a written number of how many they needed to do so. And, and these numbers were actually documented. There are fragments and in, 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 uh, uh, documents from Egypt that indicate that there were quotas for these particular things and what were demanded. In verse 12, there's an, uh, there's an urgency that is, that is spoken to the people. And so they, they, they scatter. You can see that. They, they scatter. They go everywhere across the land to find anything they could. Imagine how, imagine how tedious it is for you to get your rake and go out to your yard and rake your yard. Now, I'm not talking about leaves. Leaves are easy in comparison to raking your grass. Right? If you didn't mow your lawn for a while, you have these huge clumps of grass. Imagine having to do that all over the land, and it's these little stubbles of of grass and, and hay and straw and whatever they could find. They can, they can scrap up. And apparently, this amount, this stubble was not going to be good enough. In fact, it didn't cut it at all. In, in verse 13, you hear the Egyptian taskmasters coming back to them and telling them, guys, this is serious. You better have the bricks, and they better be done, and they better be done right. And the consequences are not only implied there in verse 13, but they come down the line in verse 14. It says, and the foremen of the people of, of Israel, so here's this group of Israelites, right, as the intermediaries, these middle managers, to the taskmasters, to the, to the Hebrews, they were beaten. They, they, were, they were beaten, and then they were asked, why have you not done your task? You were, this, you were told this is what you were doing. This was what's expected of you. You didn't meet it, so now we are beating you. The foremen were, were, were beat. They were being held responsible because the quota wasn't being made. So the foremen, in verse 15 and 16, because they were beaten, they go to Pharaoh. And the questions that they have for Pharaoh sounds like that they don't understand why they were the ones who were getting beaten. We did our job. We told them, hey, you need to do this. You need to do 
you need to make sure you hit the quota. Why, why are we the ones that are getting beat? They understand Pharaoh put them in an impossible situation. But Pharaoh responds. And, and, and there's no response, there's no, there should be no surprise here with, with Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh's response to them is two things. Number one in verse 17, he says, you people are lazy. In fact, he says it twice. You're lazy. You're lazy. And I know you're lazy because you want to go take a three-day journey to worship the Lord. That's laziness. Verse, or number two, verse 18, now go and work. Right? The conditions are still the same. You need to get your own straw, meet the quota, or else. And as we see from this, this completely deflates the, the foreman. They know this is an impossible task. There's not enough time in the day, nor is there enough straw that we could rake up from the ground to use to make the bricks to meet the quota. And they also know that they are the ones that are going to first be held responsible out of the frying pan and into the fire. And as providence would have it, verse 19, as they were leaving the presence of Pharaoh, there was Moses and Aaron there waiting to come, to come in or, or come out to meet them. And they had some words for Aaron and Moses. They said, look, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and put a sword in their hand to kill us. So, so, so here it is, right? Here's the, the first, in a sense, at least in Exodus, the grumbling and complaining. And particularly a, a grumbling, groaning and complaining, grumbling and complaining against the leader and the prophets, the prophet that God has called to deliver them. It starts here, and it doesn't sound good, does it? They said, we're dead. Pharaoh hates us. The Egyptians hate us, and it's all your fault. Now, knowing what we know about Moses and his reluctance to even go, do we even, want, even wonder why Moses prays the way he does in verses 23, or 22 and 23? Out of the frying pan and into the fire. So here's the, the first thing I want you to see this morning from our passage. And I think first that this is a living example, there is a living example within this text of the very true reality for every one of us, and that is this, and it's what Jesus told us. Jesus told us that you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two masters. At the beginning of the sermon, I, I read to you a verse from Exodus 2. And it's, and it's a sort of that commentary, right? A summary of what God is doing in light of what God's people, Israel, does. And that is they, they cried out to God. They, they cried out to God because of their bondage. Now, this is, this is important. And the reason why it's in, important is because in our passage this morning, in verses 15 and 17... The foreman of Israel, when worse got, or hard, got harder, 
when out of the frying pan into the fire, what did the foremen do? They didn't cry out to the Lord, but they cried out to Pharaoh. They cried out to, the, to Pharaoh. And this is, this is one of the things that I think throughout Exodus is something that God is trying to teach his people. God is showing his people. So we're like parents. We, we, we want to teach our children and train our children in such that they can rely on us and that, that they need help. They come and they cry out to us. They don't need to go to a, a third party or something else or, or, or stay there by themselves, scared, terrified, and confused or in fear. They can come to their parents and they can trust their parents. And this is one of the things that the Lord is teaching his people to cry out to him. They cried out in chapter 2, and God heard their afflictions and their groanings. Later in Exodus 14, they, they learn this lesson in a sense, where the Lord's people, they're, they're backed up to the Red Sea, and they're about to be crushed by Pharaoh's army. And it says that they were in absolute fear and terror. But they didn't yell to Pharaoh to spare their lives. They cried out to God. They cried out to their Lord. And what does God do? He hears and he answers. He hears and he answers. And he rescues them, just as we see from Exodus 2. But here in 5, the foremen cry out to Pharaoh. And, and, and Pharaoh hears it, right? I mean, he hears it. He hears their cries. But he certainly doesn't answer them, does he? In fact, he, he doubles down. And when the, the, when the foremen speak to Pharaoh in verses 15 and 16, look what they call themselves to Pharaoh. They call, the, they call themselves his servants his servants three times. And, and this too is important because what is the Lord demanding his people to be set free to do? But to serve him, not Pharaoh. Now, now certainly they're, they're addressing Pharaoh. They're being humble to this great king who's made their lives absolutely miserable and has beat them. But it really points out the attitude that they have to serve this king rather than the Lord, Yahweh, who is far more important. Pharaoh, though, was more important to them because they would seem that in the immediate sense, he is the one who is making their lives miserable. He is the one we must submit to and follow. But look at the... Look at the, the futility. Consider the futility of that logic. They go to Pharaoh. They call out to him. They, they proclaim to be his loyal servants. And they complain to him that the system is impossible and that the system is unfair. And, and they're right. It is unfair. It's, it's impossible. But they complain to the one who made it like that. They complain to the one who not only made it like that, but is going to keep it like that. So the very purpose of Pharaoh's decree 
was trying to convince the people not to listen to God's word, to reject God's word. By the way, this is what the seed of the serpent always does. He, he tricks us. He tries to convince us. He manipulates us. He tries to lie to us so that we do not believe God's word. So they call themselves servants. And no wonder the master is going to make the servants serve. Brothers and sisters, false gods are unforgiving taskmasters. As sinners, we can get used to sinning so much that we can have a hard time even seeing our own bondage to it. Sin is a harsh taskmaster as well. It's always demanding more from us and giving less and less to us in return. The more lustful a man indulges in his fantasies, the less happy he becomes, and yet the more he craves. The more the selfish woman gets, the less content she grows, and the more she still wants. Satan never loosens his grip. He is always tightening the chains of captivity. He's always giving us more bricks to make and less straw to make them. For the very nature of our sin, of sin itself, is to seek control of the sinner's whole life for us to be its servant. John 8.34 tells us that it says, everyone who sins is a slave to it. And so as sinners, we understand that we can become slaves to our sin. And not only understand it, but see the, the danger of it and be warned, right? Like flashing lights that every time we sin, we must understand that we can become slaves to this. And yet what we realize as well is that we need someone like Moses, but not like Moses, to come and set us free from that bondage. What we need is a, a savior, and God has provided that Savior through His Son, Jesus Christ. He is, the, in a sense, the, the, the Moses of our salvation. And here is where it focuses on the person and work of Christ in our need for a Savior to set us free and to deliver us from our sin because Jesus came to free all of those of, of all of their lives who were held in slavery, Hebrews 2, 15. Jesus is the mighty deliverer who rescues us from our captivity to evil and sin. He is the strong Savior who frees us from our bondage to death. He is our great emancipator who liberates us from our slavery to sin. And he has done all of that through the cross, through his cross. And also, 
through his resurrection, which has guaranteed our release from that slavery. It is through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we, we pass from slavery and into freedom. Everyone who trusts in Christ is released from the servitude of sin in order to live now for the glory of God. To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, we, we cannot serve two masters. We either serve the Lord or we will serve sin. We will either seek the face of the one who gives us freedom or we will continually turn back to the one who keeps us in bondage. Sin is not a liberator. Sin is what keeps us in bondage. We cannot serve two masters. The second thing that we must see this morning from our passages is how we hear from chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, this, this blame game that, that happens, the, the whose fault is it? In verses 20 or 19 through 21, the foreman, clearly they, they're laying the blame squarely at Moses' feet and Aaron's feet. And then Moses turns around in the rest of the chapter and he, and he, and he lays the blame on the Lord. And, and what we see in these verses is, is that the strategy of Pharaoh is clearly working. The strategy that Pharaoh had is to make Moses the trouble, troublemaker. The word that he speak is not true. And this Lord is not true because Pharaoh is God. And that he would be the God to those people. So these guys, they, they feel betrayed. These foremen feel betrayed. But look who they don't feel betrayed by. They don't feel betrayed by Pharaoh. They feel betrayed by Moses and by Aaron. And they show it. They pronounce a curse upon Moses that the judgment of God would fall upon them. And ironically, the judgment of God is about to rain down. Right? It's literally about to rain gnats and flies and frogs. But it's going to rain down on Egypt. So what also is ironic is, is that they say that, um, that there's this false sense, it seems like there's this false sense of security that they had beforehand. Because they say, because of you, now the sword of Pharaoh is going to come upon us. Like as if now they're all of a sudden in danger. How do you miss this besides blindness? Isn't slavery already being put in subjection by the sword? And now all of a sudden they think that danger is upon them? When faced with the immediate repercussions of their obedience, this is where it seems like I think we can understand that when we face the immediate repercussions of obedience sometimes, that we want to turn to others and blame them. When people are mad, they usually find someone to, to yell at. Whether or not it's the, the person with whom they are angry, it is also typical for, for, for people to blame others for their troubles. And in particular, we see here, so there's spiritual leaders. This is your fault. This is 
this is your fault, and clearly it's not. How is it Moses and Aaron's fault? And we see this trend throughout the Bible, not just in Moses, but also to Jeremiah. We see also the rejection of lead, the leaders of, uh, of, uh, throughout the Bible, including even the Lord Jesus Christ, who was rejected by everyone. But then we turn to Moses. Moses just got lamb-blasted by these foremen. And in verses 22 and 23, he turns and plays the blame game. I mean, if, if the foremen are blaming him, who does Moses blame? Moses blames God, because God is the one who sent them. Verse 22, it says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Now we have to stop right there for just one second, because in light of what the foreman did, look what, what, what Moses does. Mo now, regardless of what Moses says, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but Moses cries out to the Lord. Right? He cries out, to, to the Lord. He doesn't cry out to Pharaoh for mercy, but he cries out to the Lord. Moses is learning, right? We see this learning taking place to turn to the Lord, to turn to the one who will truly hear him. And the one who will truly answer his prayer for his good. So if we can see some kind of positive here, this is an honest groaning, crying out to the Lord. It sounds a lot like the, um, the laments that we hear in the Psalms, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound a lot like even the lament that Jesus says on the cross, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? And I think there's a small point of application here, and that is this. I, I think that it is okay for you to question the Lord. I think it's okay. The psalmist questions the Lord. Job questions the Lord. Again, even Jesus questions the Lord. Questions are not sinful. God, the sovereign creator of the universe, can handle your questions. It's okay to ask questions. However, are you humble enough to hear the answers? Are you humble enough to hear the word of God and then believe them? That's the difference. It's not questions of a petulant child or of a tyrant such as Pharaoh, but the earnest, honest questions of God's people, of God's children. God can hear them, and he can handle them. Again, it comes down to how you will believe and trust in his word. When he just says, I'm sovereign, trust in me, then is your posture to have faith and belief. So continue on. This is what he says to the Lord. He says, oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So what is Moses doing? Moses is flat out accusing the Lord, isn't he? I mean, he is, 
he's leveling out uh, accusations, right? He's asking questions, but in these questions, these are accusations. He's saying, this is not my fault. This is not my fault. I have, um, this is not my fault. I've done what you've told me to do. Why haven't you done what you are supposed to do? I've, I've done the things you wanted me to. Why haven't you done what you were supposed to do? Right? Doesn't it sound a lot like that, what he's saying? And essentially he's saying, you are responsible for this evil. This isn't on me, Lord. This is on you. In fact, you shouldn't even sent me. Right? Remember what he said? He's like, it's almost like a, I told you so. I, I told you I, I, I shouldn't have come in the first place. And then probably the worst one of them all there at the end is you have failed in your promises. And we have done, and all that we have done here has made things worse. And what we hear in Moses' word and tone is very revealing to what we often do when we do not like God's providence. When we face trials and sufferings, or even worse, or, or difficulty, often, sometimes, this is our response. Or when we see others around us and loved ones facing trials, our first reaction sometimes is to think, Lord, how could you do this? Or, if we want to sound a little bit more spiritual, Lord, how could you allow this? And in those moments of difficulty, in those accusations and in the accusations of Moses, this is what we hear. I wouldn't have done it that way, God. Meaning, my plan is better and my plan is more compassionate than yours. My goodness is greater than the Lord's. More greater than, is greater than yours. We worry, in a sense, as if God is going to do something wrong or that God has done something wrong. I remember being with a friend, a very dear friend of mine, whose time his child was just diagnosed with cancer. And thankfully, good news is that he is completely fine and the Lord has healed him, very kind. But in the midst of that, what, it was, what I could see and what it was doing to, this, to my friend, to this man, to this father, is how fearful he was of God taking his son. And him being tempted to believe that God is going to do something wrong here. That how can this God, who I've always believed that he is infinitely good and right, going to do something very wrong right here? And I think put in the right circumstances, any one of us could ask and do the same questions. And when we get, sometimes when we just, when we're always just getting what we want, it's easy then to be the passionate, joyful Christian. But what about when in the immediate sense we're facing the consequences of our obedience or when we're facing difficulty? That's when our true affections of our hearts are revealed. Brothers and sisters, what I see in this passage this morning, certainly as we see God working through these people, but we see God being mercifully 
so merciful and kind in such a stinking mess of human sin. And the reality is that they're showing this is that these things are hard. They're not easy. They're they're very difficult. And this sinful life and the things that we face in this fallen world are hard. And we do respond like morons before God sometimes. And we speak arrogantly sometimes. And we ask questions like this, accusing God sometimes. We accuse him of not being compassionate and that his plan is not good or or that he may do something wrong. But brothers and sisters, what we must keep in always in our minds is how infinitely good God is because how much we infinitely as sinners deserve not mercy, not grace, not goodness, but wrath. We utterly deserve Wrath, the wrath of God, no mercy, no grace, the wickedness, right? That we give, that we do before God deserves a holy, just, wrathful judgment. But look how kind God has been. Look how good he has been to us. Look how good he has been to you and me to our church, the salvation that we have in Christ. What mercy, what grace. That although it may seem in the immediate not the goodness of God, not his kindness, not his mercy, you may not be able to see it and you're swimming in the mire of the fallenness of man. Know that our sovereign Savior is kind and good and his steadfast love remains forever and this text is not over. Because chapter 6, verse 1 totally flips the page on what's happening. And that's the last thing that we, that we are to see this morning from our passage and we hear right here at chapter 6 is how the Lord answers Moses' prayer. And what does he tell him? He reminds him to stand on his promises. Verse 1, but the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his hand. The first thing I think we should see and understand here again is how amazing the mercy of God is. Look at his, how he responds. I mean, could you imagine speaking that way to your father when you were a kid? It's your fault, Dad. You, you gave me the rocks, and you put the window there. Can you imagine what your father's response would have been? Boy, you better get over here. I know what it would have been for me. But here, Moses crying out the Lord. I mean, being as brutally honest as he is, right? As he he is to the Lord. And he's literally blaming God. And God mercifully, I think, doesn't just destroy him. He mercifully does what? He's understanding 
and he's loving. Now, he doesn't answer Moses' questions, does he? He doesn't answer the why questions at all. He doesn't answer the questions. And a lot of times, like, when we say why, we don't get the same, we don't get answers a lot of times, do we? And we don't understand. But instead, the Lord in his mercy reminds Moses. He reminds Moses, don't you worry. You're going to see what I'm going to do. In fact, he's going to, the Lord tells him that, that Pharaoh, the one who seems to be, like he's in absolute control right now. Like he is the one that's holding all the puppet strings and doing all the things that he wants to do. And God is saying to his man, to Moses, that he is just a pawn. Because in this passage, it doesn't say that, it says that the Lord is going to use he, meaning Pharaoh, to send them out. And with a strong man, he is going to drive them out of the land. At the end, Pharaoh is going to say, get out! Go! He's going to enthusiastically drive them out. In fact, you might remember that the Lord says, when you leave, I'm going to give you all the wealth and riches of Egypt. And here in verse chapter 6, it starts off a, a long list of God retelling his promises. And that gives hope to Moses. So in the midst of darkness and suffering and difficulty and fear and trials, the Lord is reminding us again of his power, of his strength, of his glory, of his sovereignty, but also of his love and his mercy and his grace for his people. The truth of God's promises for his people, brothers and sisters, beloved church, is just replete throughout the Bible, isn't it? And I want to show you just two of them. Two of them that as we leave today, you can cling to. And I'm going to the big guns this morning. I'm going to the big guns. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. It says, so we do not lose heart, though our elder self is wasting away. We feel that. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. And as we look not for the things that are seen, but for the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He's, he's not saying that affliction is not difficult. He's not dis dismissing it and saying, oh, you're just whining. You're, you're just being a baby. You just need to suck it up a little bit more, and then everything is going to be okay in the end. No, he's not denying that affliction is difficult. It is hard. It is hard to walk through the dark nights of the soul. That is hard to do. But what he is saying, in comparison, though, this may be huge, it may be heavy, it is weighty, and it is difficult. But in comparison, on the ballast scales of all eternity, the weight of the glory of God that awaits us is light in comparison. 
It is as if it is nothing. When you're in glory in heaven for thousands and thousands of years with God, reigning with him, these just few years of, of torment and difficulty and trials will then seem as nothing. And that's hard to understand. I, I get that. It's a hard perspective for me to get. And so this is why we need to be reminded of this again and again and again, that this is his promise to us. The one who has saved us, the one who has, has drawn us out of the slavery to sin and death and has brought us into light and life in him. Now go to Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 31. There's a whole lot in verse in Romans 8. So when he asks this first question, just keep that in mind. There's a lot there. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Pharaoh seems to be against us. Sin seems to be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. He's, he's praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, out of the frying pan into the fire. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. And all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is a ton there. And it is the go-to place for us. But it applies very much to this morning and what we have spoken about. And that the promises of God to us in Christ. It seems as if sometimes that when things just get worse, as they often do, we must not take our eyes off of our Savior and our Lord. And we must not be so short-minded that we forget the promises that are, that are ours in Christ Jesus. The victory is won. The price has been paid. 
So what changed? What can change any of that? What can change any of that? Nothing. Out of the frying pan and into the fire is what we've been seeing here. Now, I didn't finish the story of Bilbo, of that particular scene, and the dwarves as they're clinging into the trees. Fire is upon them. Certain death is about to come upon them as they are hemmed in on all sides. An impossible situation. But fortunate, but they were very fortunate, and they did escape. Not in their own doing, but by the eagles, the giant eagles that swoop down and carry them to safety. Brothers and sisters, this is what the Lord has done for Israel. In fact, I believe it's Exodus 19. It says that the Lord, like an eagle, has swooped down to Egypt and has saved them. And this is what the Lord has done for us already in Christ. He has delivered us out of darkness and into marvelous light. But soon we will no longer see this light dimly, but we will be face to face with him who has saved us and who has delivered us. So let us keep clinging to him and trusting in him and leaning upon him for his strength. For when we are weak, he is strong. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. Amen.